Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, Happy New Year, everyone. Hope you had a great holiday. And especially, you know what, thank you for making 2018 so special. I really can't thank you enough. Hey, Ireland, you're back in first place. Thank you so much for following uh, the show. You know, we have 17 countries and Ireland, I don't know what's going on there, but these people are awesome disability rights advocates. So thank you so much. Um, And a special shout out to Yoshiko. See, Yoshiko, I'm starting out the year with a shout out to Yoshiko Dart. As everyone knows, they hear it on every show. Why? Because I want to keep the spirit of Justin Dart alive. You know what's sad? It's sad when you go to people, you know, just in general and say to them, hey, you know, do you know who Justin Dart is? And they don't. Oh, that's why we've got to do more. I don't know what we can do, but we've got to do more to have our own history out there. Um, And thank you, Highmark, for being the lead sponsor of this show three years. Wow. And AudioEye. AudioEye, thank you so much. Todd Bankafir, I love you. And thank you for also being a sponsor of the show. So, can't think of a better way to start out the year than with Andy Imperato. I know you know. Anyone here listening that's a disability uh, leader, I know you know who this great man is. And guess what? I've known him since, I was thinking about this before the show, since I think 1997, because I was on the President's Committee on the Employment of People with Disabilities with Andy, and Andy can't remember, were you with EEOC? Who were you with? Yeah, I think when we met, I was working for Paul Miller at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Okay, so that shows you how long ago it is. And Andy is a treasured friend. You know, I'm just so uh, blessed to know him. And I'll be honest with you, he's more well-known than I'll ever be. And he has done so much for uh, people with disabilities. I'm so thrilled to have you, Andy. Um, And you are now the CEO of AUCD, the Association of University Centers on Disabilities. But before we even start that, Andy, did you ever think you would become so well-known as a disability leader internationally, not just here in the United States? Well, Joyce, you're you're very kind, and the feeling is mutual. I, I really cherish our friendship and admire you and your leadership that I've been able to watch up close now for over 20 years. You know, I, I think you and I both are lucky, Joyce, that we came upon the disability movement at a time where there was so much change happening. And uh, You know, if you take the long view and you look at all of human history, you know, this period when we've been working in the movement has been a period of dramatic change, not just in the United States, but globally. And I think the people 
that have played leadership roles in the United States have been given a global platform. You know, Joyce, I know you do a lot of trips for the State Department, but people all over the world are hungry to learn from the U.S. experience because in 1990, when we passed the ADA, we were ahead of the curve, and so now we have more experience with disability as a civil rights issue and trying to figure out what that means in the workplace in transportation and housing and education and all the different areas, you know, we've positioned ourselves as a global leader and we continue to be a resource for the rest of the world on these issues. Yes, but you are a disability leader, prominent disability leader. And I'll bet you didn't think that was going to happen when you first realized you were living with bipolar disorder. Just no, as you know, I did for, not for when me, I had, yeah. I was going to say, just as I did not when I had that seizure at a movie theater. No, I think that's exactly right, Joyce. When I was in law school, you know, I knew I wanted to do social justice work. I knew I wanted to use my law degree to try to make a difference. And, you know, my first first episode of depression was during my last semester of law school, And it took me about a year after I graduated to realize that, well, now I have an insight into a population that experiences a lot of inequality and inequity, and I can use my personal experience to try to make a difference with that population. But, you know, you start out as a lawyer, you know, working with one client, working with one organization. I certainly did not think that that my career would take me to Washington and, and having the opportunity to work with Senator Harkin and other opportunities that I've had, and it's, it's been a wonderful uh, experience for me to be part of this movement. And before we talk about AUCD, when I talk about Andy and him being so involved for years as a leader in the disability community, keep in mind that Andy Imperato was the CEO of AAPD during the formative and, you know, first historic years um, of it, you know, of it being built. And, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones that Andy changed the bylaws so that a business person could be on the board. Well, it was a great, we had a great time, Joyce, trying to build AAPD, and it's still a great organization. I appreciate how long you've hung in there on the board. Yes, well, um, as I said, So much a part of you, Andy. But okay, how about if you explain to our listeners what the Association of University Centers on Disability is, which Andy leads as CEO? Sure. Um, Well, Joyce, we're, we're a federally funded network of centers that are connected to universities that are really about improving the quality of life of children and adults with disabilities. We have core funding to support children and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including things like interdisciplinary training, research, advocacy, leadership development, disseminating knowledge. So, you know, classroom teachers, clinicians, other people know what evidence-based practices are that are going to, you know, get the best outcomes for folks with disabilities. So the core funding is around intellectual and developmental disabilities, and then over time, many of our centers have gone broader and are really working with the, the full cross-disability population. 
And Andy, for someone listening to the show, if they would want to make a donation to AUCD, how do they do that? The easiest way is online. Our website is aucd.org, and there's a donate box on the upper right-hand corner. Uh, One of the things that we raised money for around the holidays was something that's called our DREAM Fund, which stands for Disability Rights Education and Advocacy Mobilization. But it's really a a set of money that we have to bring uh, self-advocates with disabilities and family leaders to Washington to participate in hearings and meetings and events to advocate on behalf of people with disabilities. So that's something that... um, people can contribute to year-round, and if you click on the donate button, it shows you how to do that. Well, I'm going to be challenging my listeners all year about all of this different disability groups that you can support because, you know, we can't, we can't all be sitting on the sidelines saying, we need this, we need that. Oh, this is so important. Oh, that's great. AUCDs doing that. Guess what? It takes money. It takes resources to do all of this. So is it AUCD.org? Is that what you said? Yes. AUCD.org. You can go make a donation today. Um, there are actually 67 universities in your membership network, which is amazing, that are university centers for excellent in developmental disabilities. Now, here's what I was wondering. How does that happen? Like, how, do you, how are you designated as a university center for excellence in developmental disabilities? Yeah, so the federal agency that oversees uh, those programs, Joyce, is the Administration on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, which is part of what is called the Administration for Community Living. You may remember, Joyce, during the Obama administration, they combined the Administration for Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities with the Administration on Aging and created a new Administration for Community Living, and then Independent Living was put in there and Assistive Technology and the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. So it's kind of an interesting mix of programs and services within the Department of Health and Human Services. But AIDD, the the agency that oversees us, they're the ones that have the power to designate a USED. So we had an expansion in our network a little over 10 years ago where we we got USEDs in states or areas where we didn't have them, and we're now in every state and territory um, so the way you become a USED is by being designated as a USED by the federal agency that oversees our program. Wow. And do all of the are they all similar or do they all have different programs? Yeah, it's interesting, Joyce. I think um, there's a lot of diversity as you travel across our network. Some of it has to do with kind of when the center was created and where it's housed within its university. So some of our older centers tend to be more clinical. They tend to be more medical. A lot of them are housed within departments of pediatrics, even though they have a lifespan mission. They, they kind of started out focused on children, and, and many of them are still housed within a department of pediatrics. A lot of the newer centers are, it's, it's much broader where they're housed, like the center in Pennsylvania at Temple, as you know, Joyce, the Institute on Disabilities at Temple 
is housed in the Department of Education at Temple. And obviously in that setting, it has kind of a different set of priorities. It's not as clinically focused. It's more community focused. So they do vary a lot. Um, and really, the, you know, part of what they're supposed to be doing is looking at the needs in their state and trying to develop programming that's relevant for their state. So the center in Montana, for example, runs a research and training center on rural disability issues because those are the issues they're dealing with in Montana. Um, so there's a lot of variety across the network, which I think is a real strength of the network. Now, that that uh, rural disabilities you were just talking about, is that for children or is that for adults? What is that for? Yeah, that's a lifespan center that's funded by the National Institute on Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research. And it's really looking across the board at what are some of the issues that people with disabilities face in rural areas. As you know, Joyce, one of the big issues is transportation. So what are the solutions, you know, that can be developed in rural areas? They've done a lot of work around public health in rural areas, how to get people to be more active um, and they use technology to do it. It's kind of an interesting center. They've got a lot of wearable technologies that they're using to study what makes people more active in rural settings. I'll tell you what, that is such an issue for employment, the rural areas, transportation. So, you know, that's so good that they're looking at that. Of course, we need to do a lot in that area. But when you mentioned that, um, that there is such a need for what they're doing in Montana. That is really awesome um, that they're doing that. And, and Andy, I want to tell you, you know, in the epilepsy world, there is this differentiation that I don't know should exist. Maybe when people talk about developmental disabilities versus intellectual disabilities, because of course, if you're born with epilepsy, you, you can have a be a developmental disability. You, how do you define it? So this is defined in our federal authorizing legislation, the Developmental Disabilities Assistance and Bill of Rights Act. The basic concept of a developmental disability, as you know, Joyce, is that the disability kicks in at birth or before age 22 and it affects enough different areas of your life that it counts as a significant enough disability that it, it, it is considered developmental. So absolutely, people who are born or have childhood onset epilepsy could qualify as people with developmental disabilities. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty diverse population, blind folks, folks with cerebral palsy, uh, a variety of intellectual disabilities. But there are a number of developmental disabilities, as you know, Joyce, that don't necessarily affect the person's ability to learn and their cognitive skills, and they still count as developmental disabilities if they affect their ability to move, to see, you know, other, other major life areas. Um, so it's just, it's a category of severity of disability that also has to kick in either at birth or before you turn age 22. That, those are, that's the combination that gets counted as a developmental disability. Now, would deaf be included in that? Well, there are a lot of deaf people who also have other disabilities that collectively would count as a developmental disability. Like, there are a lot of autistic people who are also deaf. They definitely count. If the person was deaf 
and otherwise, you know, cognitively and otherwise didn't have any other impairments, because it's only affecting one area, it's typically not going to count as a developmental disability. So, and why I'm asking you this is when you talk to people about, you know, developmental disability, DDI, whatever it is, they always think just intellectual disability um, or, yeah, some type of intellectual disability. I, I don't know if you've noticed that, but even here in Pennsylvania, when you talk about it, that is what people, uh, you know, they don't think of someone with cerebral palsy uh, and, and maybe even autism, whatever, um, I don't know why that is, but uh, you can define what intellectual disability is for our listeners. Well, again, I mean, the intellectual disability concept is something that, um, you know, is defined in a variety of different federal contexts. But the basic idea, again, is that it's a disability that affects your cognitive ability. It can affect your ability to manage, you know, your finances. It can affect you know, how you interact with other folks, how you access education. Um, There used to be a stronger emphasis on IQ. I think a lot of people are questioning some of the validity of IQ tests, so people are using other other ways of determining it. But as as you know, Joyce, there are a lot of folks who um, the disability affects their ability to get educated and then can affect the ability to get a job or live independently and exercise self-determination. So what a lot of our centers are focused on is maximizing people's self-determination, helping them develop the ability to communicate their wishes and have a sense of agency and a sense of possibility of what they can do with their lives, including competitive integrated employment. Yes, I think it's so great that you do that. I do, because um, something that I hope the day will come that we don't have is subminimum pay. I mean, it's just so terrible. Um, the empl- because the employment rate for people with disabilities, as you know, is not good. Uh, hopefully, we're going to get somewhere before the 30th anniversary, which, on the other hand, is only a year away, the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But for people with intellectual disabilities, like everyone knows I own Bender Consulting Services, so what do I do for a living? I help people with disabilities gain employment like a search process for corporations and federal agencies in competitive areas like IT, finance, accounting. And when people with me to, are referred to me with an intellectual disability, now I have been successful at Highmark. They have a mailroom print shop and I have been successful getting someone a job eight years ago with Down syndrome, who has been promoted since then. And, you know, it's fabulous. He has quality of life now. But it is so hard when the person has an intellectual disability. Is this something, Andy, that you're focusing on uh, at AUCD? Or are there other programs that specifically focus on this? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a big part of what our, our centers do around the country and what we advocate for in Washington. As you know, Joyce, there's an employment first movement around the country that's really trying to raise the expectations of what's possible for people with intellectual disabilities. There's a, a project that plays out in, in multiple states called Project Search, which started out at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which is creating uh, com- competitive integrated employment internships, started out in hospital settings, and they've branched out to other settings. But yes, this is something that our centers are trying to develop the, the programs and to help prepare people for employment and then help people have success in competitive integrated employment in the area that fits their interests. You know, historically, people with intellectual disabilities have been kind of um, channeled into certain areas that people thought would be jobs that they could do. And I think what we're finding is people with intellectual disabilities can be successful as lobbyists. They can be successful as models. They can be successful as actors. There's a lot of of different roles that people can play, including roles that maybe weren't traditionally thought of as, as roles where they would have success. Right, like this job Justin has is using technology, and as I said, he's been promoted, uh, and when I tell people, they're like so shocked, can't believe he has this job, but you know, I really think that's great that you're doing that. I think that's so important. So if you are listening to the show and you have a child with an intellectual disability or you have a friend or a family member or you are, once again, AUCD.org. Make a donation to One one thing that, that we do that I think might be of interest to your listeners is we have a weekly YouTube series called Tuesdays with Liz, where Liz Weintraub, who's part of our policy staff and is a woman with an intellectual disability, interviews people that are doing work in the policy area and has them describe what they're doing and why it matters in a way that's accessible for people that aren't policy professionals. And and we're finding that there's a good international audience for what she's doing like there is for your radio show, Joyce. So I would just point people to that. They can find that on YouTube or they can find it through our website. But it's called Tuesdays with Liz. And it's fantastic. I hope that, and she is awesome. I hope that you will go listen to that. But why I'm telling you all of that, over these 20 years, I have more people, parents of children with intellectual disabilities that have called me, can you help? Can you find a job? What's going on? What can be done? And that's why I wanted to make sure you understand that that is AUCD. And I want you to tell everyone you know about that. Because as I said, from an employment standpoint, I hear about this so much. What are they going to do? What's going to happen? What about when I get older? Um, Can they do more than just work, you know, in this sheltered workshop, which absolutely shouldn't be doing that anyway. But I just want to make sure you know A-U-C-D. And go listen to that show. And Andy, I want to commend you again because I think that's so awesome that you're doing that at A-U-C-D. Thank you, Joyce. Okay. You know, every half hour we have 
our news break called Advocacy Matters, where we're giving our listeners an update on the news, what's going on in the world of advocacy for people with disabilities with Perry Jude Radisick from the Pennsylvania Disability Rights Network. Perry, welcome to the show. Hey, Joyce. Uh, thank you, and Happy New Year, Andy and Parado. Happy New Year. Uh, it's great to have Andy on the show, uh, AUCD, and uh, the network of uh, USEDs across the country are great to work with. We have a great relationship with uh, Temple uh, University. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, tip of the hat to Andy and uh, his network of uh, university centers uh, on excellence and developmental disabilities. It's, uh, they're great partners, and they do a great job. So uh, thanks, Andy, for all of your work. Thank you, Perry. So, Joyce. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about the partial federal government shutdown and the impact this has, which I think is a direct impact on the lives of people with disabilities. And in particular, we need to understand that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is closed. Housing and urban development is closed. And soon states will start running out of food stamp support. Now, this is a partial shutdown. Organizations like AUCD and Disability Rights Pennsylvania are open. Why? Because our federal funding comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That appropriations bill passed Congress and was signed by President Trump in September of 2018. So we are not caught up in this partial government shutdown. Our offices across the country are open, and we are receiving federal funding to do intake and to do the work we've always done. So we're open. Our doors are open. Our intake is open, and our work continues. But if you're a person with a disability who visits the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or Housing and Urban Development to file complaints of discrimination, you are greeted with a message that these offices are closed due to the partial government shutdown. At the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you are told that their toll-free hotline and ASL video phones are not available and that all EEOC digital portals are closed. In fact, if you try to navigate your way through the EEOC website, you will find that the only way to file a complaint is to download the complaint form, fill it out, and mail it in, drop it off, or fax it to an EEOC office closest to you. So you cannot call them. You cannot use the American Sign Language video phones. You cannot call them. And you cannot use an online form to file your complaint. And housing and urban development 
their offices are closed, and their website is not being updated. However, unlike the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you can still use their fair housing complaint form online. So even though HUD has closed, they have not closed that portal at this time. So Joyce, advocacy matters. It's important that people know that there are statute of limitations. And if you think you have a complaint of employment or housing discrimination, you still have to file your complaint as soon as possible. Don't wait. This partial federal government shutdown and the closure of these government offices, it does not toll the statute of limitation. I know that's legalese. But that means that you have so many days. Oftentimes, it's 180 or 300 days to file your complaint. It doesn't stop those 180 or 300 days from ticking. You still have to file your complaint on time. So there are ways to do that. We will have information on our website that gives you the links and shows you how to do that. So visit disabilityrightspa.org and we'll have information up on our website by the end of the day that shows you how you can still file your complaint. Remember, advocacy matters. The, the closure of government offices does not toll the statute of limitations. There are still ways to file your complaint, and we ask you to do that if you feel you have a complaint of discrimination. And could so you thanks, give them Joyce. that? Hold on, Perry. Could you give them the, your website one more time? Yes, it's disabilityrightspa.org. And Perry, I look so forward to you being on all these shows this year. You just bring us such great news. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Joyce, and thanks, Andy, for your work. Yeah, Andy, we started this a year ago because we wanted to keep our listeners sort of like a CNN break. (laughs) We wanted them to know what's going on and keep them in the know, uh, and Perry does that for us. So I'm just so happy to have her doing that. Did you have any comment you wanted to make about that, Andy, about the uh, partial shutdown? I mean, no, as I, I agree. I agree with her. You know, the longer the shutdown goes on, the more extreme the consequences are going to be for real people. Um, you know, it affects food stamps. It affects a lot of different things that people rely on to live. So I just, I strongly encourage folks to reach out to their members of Congress, regardless of party, and ask them to do whatever they need to do to reopen the government and work out whatever the differences are that are keeping the government from opening. I do too, because as Andy just said, there will be dire consequences in different areas for people with disabilities, uh, people disenfranchised. So you've got to speak up. I've told you on every show, you've got to speak up. Well, Andy, I was absolutely shocked when I read the white paper from the Ruderman Foundation uh, on the Ivy League universities that are failing students with mental health issues. I mean, I, I like I had no idea that was going on, uh, such as the involuntary dismissal of students 
Uh, and I know that you, you know, have been very involved with Jay Ruderman and certainly aware of this uh, with your own mental health issue. So could you talk about that for a minute for our listeners? Yeah, and, you know, I, I think the reason they focus on Ivy League institutions, Joyce, is because those institutions tend to have a lot of resources. And so they were they were looking at a resource-rich environment and saying even in these environments, they're not prioritizing, you know, providing the kinds of services and supports that students who are dealing, many, in many cases, with a new mental health diagnosis are going to need to be able to, to manage that successfully and stay in school and complete their degrees. Um, I, you know, I think one of the challenges we have, Joyce, is there's a tendency in a lot of institutions of higher education to assume that after uh, a student has a significant uh, mental health issue, that the best thing to do is to get them out of the campus, have them go deal with their mental health issue, and then come back after they've dealt with it. And the reality is that removing them from the campus may, in many cases, make the mental health issue worse. And, you know, it's often hard for students that are dealing with a first episode of depression or anxiety or whatever, whatever the condition may be to get quality mental health care on the campus so that they can get a good diagnosis and figure out the best, you know, option to manage the symptoms connected to that diagnosis. And, you know, universities compete with each other on how good their food is, on their athletics, on their academics, all these different ways. But what we're not seeing is universities bragging about how good their mental health services are. (laughs) And in general, Joyce, we don't see universities bragging about how good their services for students with disabilities writ large are. You know, I visited a lot of elite institutions of higher ed with both of my sons, And I always ask the question, what's it like for students with disabilities on this campus? And the variety of answers I got from institutions that had very large endowments was really shocking. You know, I'll never forget going to Williams College with my son, Gareth, and it was an undergrad that was giving the tour, and he said, if I were in a wheelchair, I would not come here. And then we went to Amherst, which was kind of the same school in terms of resources, and they had a history of Amherst kind of splitting off from Williams. But the answer I got at Amherst was completely different and was much more positive. So I feel like one of the things that needs to happen is the leaders in these leading institutions of higher ed need to decide that they need to be the best in the world on services for students with mental health or physical disabilities, just like they're trying to be the best in the world in all these other areas. Yeah, but I mean, I can't even, this is unbelievable that you would go to a student, what is the basis? Why are they allowed to do that? Why are they allowed to say, okay, leave campus, you know, go away for a while, then come back when you you are uh, better? I mean, I think some of it's driven by lawyers who are worried about liability. They don't want folks to commit suicide on campus. They don't want uh, students with mental illness to be disruptive to other students. I mean, you can imagine, Joyce, all the, all the arguments that lawyers make for why it's the best, best course to have the student get removed until they've dealt with their mental health issues. But I feel like one of, one of the, the things that allows that to happen is students don't know their rights. 
parents don't know the rights of their children with disabilities while they're on a college campus. So students are dealing with a very challenging new diagnosis and set of symptoms, and the university is telling them this is in your best interest to leave, and they don't know any better than to believe that. You know, and I feel like part of what we have to do is educate folks uh, what are their rights and, and what are the best practices when you're dealing with a new diagnosis. I mean, I remember when I had my first serious episode of depression, Joyce, I was at Harvard Law School as a visiting student my last semester of law school, and I had married Betsy the summer before. And, you know, I feel like I was on a conveyor belt, and Betsy helped me stay on the conveyor belt and graduate. You know, and if I had not stayed on that conveyor belt, I think the depression would have gotten worse, and who knows how it would have affected my career. So I just think we need to do better at educating students and families about what their rights are, and again, getting the leaders on these campuses to understand that providing quality mental health services is a critically important service for all students. And if you're gonna be a world-class institution of higher ed, you have to provide world-class mental health services. But like, how would they decide who should be sent home and, and by the way, I even read to some students, they were told they cannot come back on campus, which I'm reading this and I'm thinking, oh, they're doing everything wrong when they're doing these things. But how do they decide that? How do they decide, okay, you, you know, you're very depressed, you're not. How, who decides this? I mean, you know, they're typically going to rely on mental health professionals who may not have spent a lot of time with the student. Um, you know, I mean, as you know, Joyce, it's, it's all idiosyncratic. It, it, it's affected by the environment, and it's unique to the individual. So that's not a simple analysis to do. And I think, again, the bias in lots of colleges is mentally ill students are dangerous. The best thing for us to do is to get them off the campus while they're dealing with their mental illness. Yeah, and part of that is when you hear, okay, we have to take guns away from people with a criminal background or mental illness. You know, this this thing that every person with a mental health issue, uh, is, you know, has a gun and is going to be violent is only making it worse for people with mental health issues to get jobs. I mean, it is just making it worse, which is why, by the way, companies that are listening, people do not self-disclose. Why would you ever self-disclose, you know, what people don't want to anyway with any disability, but absolutely they would never raise their hand and say, oh, by the way, you know, um, I have OCD or depression or bipolar disorder, well, whatever it would be. They are not because of this horrific stigma. Uh, you know, and I mean, what they're doing at schools, these professors are just perpetuating it by doing this. And I did not get to read the entire paper, but was there a recommendation at the end as to what should happen? Well, you know, I think one of the things I really appreciate about the Ruderman Family Foundation, Joyce, is they're they're trying to hold accountable institutions that historically have gotten away with things because they're kind of above accountability. You know, they're trying to do that with Hollywood, too, and trying to get, you know, film studios to take seriously casting actors with disabilities in disability roles. 
But yeah, I mean, their their recommendation is that institutions of higher ed really take a hard look at this issue and recognize that at its core, it's a civil rights issue and create better services for students where the bias is that the student would stay on the campus and do a better job educating all students about what their rights are and what they have a right to expect from the places where they go to school. Yeah. Yes, well, I too, my hat's off to the foundation for doing this and especially that they went to Ivy League schools. Oh my God, that's what, you know, this is not like it was some college in some rural area that's small and they don't know any better. I mean, that was the best part that they focuses on schools that have the resources and certainly should know better to do the right thing. Um, Andy, I think we've talked about this before, but something I wanted to talk to you about, you know, as I stated earlier, you, you know, if I talk to anyone in the disability rights community and I say, Andy, it's like, Andy, Everyone knows who Andy is uh, because you are such a great leader. Um, My question is, do you believe that we are encouraging enough young leaders to like follow in your footsteps and become a disability rights leader and have a policy background or get a law degree? What's your opinion about that? Well, you know, I know, Joyce, you spend time working with high school students. Uh, You know, even though your primary focus is adults, you recognize that, you know, it's important for people to develop leadership skills and be comfortable in their own skin as people with disabilities from as early an age as possible. So, you know, I, I would say we're not doing enough in K through 12 education for children that have childhood onset disabilities to help them develop a strong sense of identity as a proud person with a disability. Um, And so that's one of the areas where I feel like we really need to do better. You know, my goal would be for every young person when they graduate from high school or they they finish their, their schooling, you know, K through 12 education, they know what their rights are as an adult with a disability. You know, Perry Jude talked about the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They know what these things are. They know how to access them. They know how to assert their rights as adults with disabilities. And I just I don't think we're doing a good good enough job making sure that young people have that knowledge and those skills as they're leaving school. And obviously, having a good work experience while they're still in school, where they can be open about their disability at work, where they can ask for accommodations if they need them, and understand what accommodations are going to help them be successful. That should all happen while young people are still in school. Right. I mean, do you think we could, like, have some type of, I don't know, national program? I mean, I know there are a lot of, like, mentee uh, programs, but, you know, I just wish we could do more because I, I just think this is so important. Yeah, you know, I, I think part of it is, Um, building a stronger disability cultural identity and understanding that that leadership development is a lifelong activity and that there are opportunities 
to reach people in different ways at different parts of their careers. And that is one of the things that I like about the AUCD network, um, you know, cultivating diverse leaders for the disability field is a big part of what we do. And we do it in an interdisciplinary way. And we, we try to instill in the folks that go, who go through our programs that, you know, if you're a leader as a pediatrician or a nurse or an occupational therapist or whatever your discipline is, part of being a leader is being able to think at a systems level and do advocacy. So you can't, you're not going to be a leader as a pediatrician if you're not making time to do advocacy with and for the population and their families that you're serving. So that's a big part of what our, our centers do around the country, Joyce. We have 4,000 long-term trainees who go through our leadership program every year, and I think that that's a really important part of, of trying to grow the, the capacity of our movement to impact policy. And another reason you should make a contribution to AUCD.org. And Andy, I assume if you go to the website, there's a place that says donate? Yes. Because it's always easiest to do that online. Um, Because all of these things we're talking about, oh, you know, even hearing. You just heard what's going on. We need more people um, that that aren't just you know, leaders, but understand, you know, our history and understand, as you said, what is the EOC, what, you know, and how does that impact me? So that's really great that you're doing that. And you know what, isn't it hard to believe next year is the 30th anniversary of the ADA? Because I think, was it the 10th anniversary where you had that thing with Volkswagen? Yep, the torch relay, the spirit of the ADA torch relay was in 2000. Yeah, it's amazing that that was 18 years ago. I was there. Yeah, that is amazing. That really is amazing. Uh, But it is even more amazing to me that it's the 30th anniversary. Sadly, it's horrible that the needle has not moved more in employment, but we're trying to move it forward, uh, as as you know, in this country. But uh, the the presidential election is also in 2020, and I believe, again, whether you are Republican or Democrat, here's what matters: voting. Voting matters, uh, and registering to vote matters. So. Andy, do you think there's a way we could unite more people with disabilities uh, into an action in this area? You mean around voting? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's interesting, Joyce, that you, you and I both, you know, got involved in the 2016 cycle and Tony Coelho, you know, played a real leadership role on that. But, I mean, look at the amount of money that Tony was able to raise from the disability community as part of the campaign. I mean, I I feel like um, people are ready to be more politically engaged. They want to get involved in campaigns. They want to be part of making change that that they will feel in their lives. So, you know, to the extent that people are frustrated with the state of politics and are frustrated with the general state of the country, that's an organizing opportunity for our community, you know, and, and, you know, 
I think if you look at all these people who are running for president right now, it'll be interesting who is the first to come out with a strong disability agenda that people can rally around. And there's a real opportunity for one of the candidates to really distinguish themselves early by talking about their agenda for children and adults with disabilities if they're elected. Well, I agree with you. I do feel we've come a long way because we were a good percentage of the vote. But some way, we have to unite and make that known. Um, You know what I mean? So that we have a place at the table. So that candidates say, oh, my God, I better get this disability community behind me or I better include more in my platform. So I I just hope we are able to do that because uh, I think it was you talking about it once, Andy, how we have this huge voting block that no one knows about. So I think I think that we did make a difference, you know, but I think we can even do more to make that. Uh, more well-known to those candidates. I think that's right, Joyce, and I I think it's important when you talk about the we, you know, to recognize that it's a pretty broad population. It's not just the voting age people with disabilities, but it's also parents and family members of children and adults with disabilities. It's professionals who work with people with disabilities for a living. And the way I think about the disability vote or the disability voting block, Joyce, is it's anybody who has a strong disability interest when they're voting. And that ends up being a huge part of the population when you include the family members and the professionals who interact with them as part of their careers. Right, right. Well, I think it's so important, so I hope that that does happen. Uh, So, Andy, how about you? What are your plans this year for AUCD? Well, you know, I think this year we're excited about, um, you know, trying to build bipartisan support with a Democratic House and a Republican Senate to, you know, support the goals of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So a big thing that we still haven't done that Senator Harkin spent a lot of time on is trying to get rid of the institutional bias in the Medicaid program. There's a bill called the Disability Integration Act that ADAPT and NICOL have been really been taking the lead on. But I'm hoping with the Democratic House that we can get some real attention to that bill in the committees that have jurisdiction over it, that we can have a hearing, have a markup, and get that bill to the floor in the House. And I think if we can do that, that will be a very significant achievement. Um, you know, there's, there's um, autism legislation called Autism Cares, that is set to expire um, in the next Congress. So we want to reauthorize that in part because it's connected to those interdisciplinary leadership programs that I was telling you about around the country that are training professionals and family leaders and self-advocates who are going to be working with children and youth uh, on the autism spectrum and other developmental disabilities. Um, There's a a piece of legislation that, that Chairman Bobby Scott from the Education and Labor Committee is, is the champion for it called the Keeping All Students Safe Act, which is trying to make sure that we're not using seclusion and restraints in classrooms and that we're using positive behavioral interventions and supports to manage behavior for children in classrooms that have disabilities that affect their behavior. 
So, you know, as you know, Joyce, our community has always been bipartisan, and we've always been able to achieve things even in difficult political environments. So I'm hopeful that we will we will have some issues in this Congress where we can get a bill to the president and the president can sign it. I think the Autism Cares legislation is probably the strongest early candidate, but I'm hoping in keeping all students safe and some of these other bills, the Disability Integration Act, are things that we can make serious progress on in this Congress. And I know that if our listeners... Uh, are hearing what you're saying, that they can make a difference by keeping in touch with their congressman, uh, you know, calling their senator and saying how important this is. It does make a difference. I remember when Senator Harkin said um, that when a bill was being debated, oh, no, it was CRPD, that one group, you know, hundreds of calls, his office, a few calls, and that does make a difference. Isn't that right, Andy? No question. I mean, you know, the, the, the bottom line is members of Congress pay attention to outreach from their home district or their home state. So uh, they know how many people call in support of something and against something. And if we're not mobilizing and making sure that our members know about the issues that we care about, then we're missing that opportunity to be part of the process in a way that can have a real impact. Well, great words. Andy, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, Joyce, you know, one of the highlights for me of 2018 was Liz Weintraub, who we've already talked about, testifying in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee about the importance of self-determination for people with intellectual disabilities. And she talked about how when we, when we say liberty and justice for all, all means all. So I think that's a great message for us to take into 2019, you know, whether we're talking about quality education, inclusive higher education, <coughs> employment, housing. You know, we want to extend the American dream to all people and all means all. All means all. Well, Andy, thank you so much for starting the year with us. Thanks for having me, Joyce. And we end every show with a quote. And with what we've talked about, this is right on target. The time is always right to do what is right said. Martin Luther King Jr. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week with Clay Houghton. Don't miss the show. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.